Amen. Good morning, church. Man, what an awesome morning already. I just uh, was about to jump out of my seat over there. You know, it, it is amazing to be able to have a little bit of a, of a bigger view of the world. It, it can be easy for everyone to get tunnel vision at times. But I just want to encourage you, hear, hearing of, of workers from other countries outside of the U.S. that are joining in the mission, this is, this is something that's happening all over the world and is awesome. Uh, even as we're seeing people from South America, Brazil and Argentina, China and Korea and the Philippines, from South Asia, as the church has risen there greatly and rapidly over the last 30 years. And now they're realizing, wait a second, this mission isn't just for people from the West. This mission is for every follower of Jesus. We have the same spirit because it's one Lord and one Savior and one spirit. And it's amazing to watch God as he's bringing the global church together to look at lostness and to understand that that the gospel, what we have been given and what we have received is is the answer. It's the the water that that alone can saturate the thirst of a world. My name is Jacob Boss. As Paul mentioned, my wife Elizabeth and I and our four kids have the privilege of living in London, England and serving uh, the work across Europe. Europe would go from Russia to the UK, and then we include Canada and Australia as well. Uh, We served in South Asia for around 10 years and got to see God do some amazing things there, and then he called us to, uh, to the UK. And we were like, what is this, Lord? I thought we were supposed to take the gospel where the gospel had never been. And you look at Europe and you say, the gospel has been there. Because Europe has a rich history of Christianity. But the reality, and something that we've learned experientially at this point, is that when you get to Europe, you realize that what was once Christianity in Europe is no longer. And just because your grandmother might have had access to the gospel does not mean that you have access to the gospel. And we now are tracking around one point. 4, 1.3, 1.4% evangelical in Europe. This means that Europe is the most lost continent on the face of the earth today in terms of percentage of evangelicals. There are more lost people in the global south, in the 1040 window across northern Africa and in Asia because there's more people there. But in terms of percentage of evangelicals, Europe is an extremely dark place. And so we have uh, 550 or so workers plugging away in the hard soils of Europe. And we're just so thankful for your support. We know that you guys pray for us. You, you give to help us do what, what we do. And many times you even come and join us in that work. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Man, what a day we're living in. As I just mentioned, the rise of the global, the global church. But we're also living in a day of great challenge. We're, we're looking at news and we're watching geopolitical shifts happening on a global scale. We see wars and rumors of wars. We see massive issues with refugees as they're being forced to leave their home and and place that they love to go to other places that they don't know. We see orphans around the world. We see poverty. If If you flip on social media at all and cruise through the news, if you flip on the news and read, man, it can be anxiety inducing. Quickly, you can be like, what is happening? This world seems like it's falling apart. And so I have to be careful even when I read the news. But I just want to remind us in the midst of 
seeming chaos around the world of some fundamental truths. Nothing that I say this morning is going to be new to you, but hopefully it will remind us of some essential truths. Because the reality is, if we don't understand the root cause of what's happening in the world, then we risk coming up with solutions that are the wrong solution. We risk coming up with solutions that are not going to fix the core problem. So today I want to talk about how the gospel advances. We're going to be in Romans chapter 10, and we're going to start in verses 9 to 15. If you want to turn there in your Bible or on your device, verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. And he richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The first question that pops out of this text is, why do I need to be saved? What do I need to be saved from? What's the big deal with this saving thing? Well, that's a great question. What we need to be saved from is sin. You see, the the reality as we look around the world today, the reality, the truth is that the biggest problem in the world is lostness. The biggest problem in the world is sin. Lostness brings about a desperation that maybe some of us in this room would even remember. But it is the biggest problem in the world today. Now here's the risk, is that we separate the problems that we see in the world today with the spiritual reality of sin. When the truth is, the problems that we see in the world today have its roots in sin. The fruit of sin is many of the problems that we're seeing today. Let's go back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, we have Adam. God creates Adam, and then from Adam, he creates Eve, and he puts them in this beautiful garden where he walks and he talks with them. They have a perfect relationship with God. And he gives them one rule. Now, how awesome would it be to only have one rule? It'd be pretty great, right? I wish I could only have one rule. So one rule. What was that rule? That's right. Don't eat from the tree. And here comes the serpent. And the serpent takes the fruit and brings it to Eve and says, Eve. If you will just eat, you will become like the gods. You will know good from evil. And Eve takes it and she eats it. And then she takes it to Adam who also eats. And sin has now entered the world. Relationship with God has been broken. But with sin immediately comes shame. 
And because of that shame, Adam and Eve feel like they need to hide from God. It's really funny that they think they can hide from God. It's really funny when we think we can hide from God. But here comes God, Adam, Eve. Adam and Eve finally come out. They've covered themselves with leaves. God asks them what they've done, and they immediately start to blame, right? Well, it was Eve that made me do it. Well, it was the serpent that made me do it. And God, right there in the garden, makes the first blood sacrifice where he covers Adam and Eve with the skin of animals. But we immediately begin to see the fruit of this sin nature. The first two children are Cain and Abel. And Abel gives a more perfect sacrifice. He gives the animals and Cain brings the fruit of, and the vegetables of the garden. God accepts Abel's. Cain gets angry. And what does he do? He kills, he murders his own brother. We then can play that out throughout the Old Testament. Sin gets so great that God even has to judge the world, but then he provides a path forward. So the fruit of sin is many, much of the evil that we see today. We even see here in Romans chapter 1 the heart attitudes that sin brings. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Whew. That's a lot of really bad things. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. So here's the reality. So we look around the world today and we see all of the evil and we see all of the crazy things that are happening. Anything that is evil can be directly attached to one of these things in Romans chapter 1. Because the fruit of sin is evil. And I think it's very important for us as the church to remember the root of the problem. Now, absolutely, we should be about feeding the hungry, rescuing the poor, taking care of the orphans, giving clothes to those that don't have clothes. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus on the earth. And many ministries in this church do that very thing because that's what we are asked to do. But we have to remember that while we care for the physical needs of the world, there is an underlying issue of sin that has to be addressed. But here is the amazing news. There is an answer for the problem. The answer is found in the gospel. Even here as we see in Romans uh, chapter 10. How do you get saved? If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You see, the gospel is the only solution to lostness. God's kindness leads us to repentance. So amazing and it's so beautiful that it's his kindness is what it says in Romans 2, 4 that leads us to repentance. Recently, I've been in uh, Psalms and I was in Psalm 139. Psalms 139 is, is an amazing psalm. And it reminds me that, number one, God created me. It reminds me that God created you. It reminds me that God intimately knows each and every one of us. But what's crazy to me about Psalm 139 is that he knows every thought that I've thunk, and he knows every thought that I'm going to think, and he knew all of that before I was even a thought in my parents' mind. You see, the reality is God knows everything about you. That's why it's really funny that sometimes we think we can hide from God. Well, we might be able to put on a show or an act for those that are outside of us. The real question is, what if people could actually get inside of your thoughts? That's a pretty dangerous place. Yet, even though God knows everything about you, he knows every evil, wicked thought that you've even thunk, he loved you enough to send his son Jesus to die on the cross. God loved you so much that while you were still a sinner, he died for you. Despite his knowledge of the worst of us, his love is greater. He died and rose again so that we could be forgiven. He died and rose again so that you and I could become sons and daughters, heirs of a kingdom. He died and rose again so that the shame and guilt that you have, he could take on himself. That is how much Jesus loves you. Now here's, here's the struggle. If you've been in church for a long time, if you've been in church for your whole life, it can be very easy to forget these things. It can become very easy for these things to just be thoughts in my mind that I no longer realize in my heart. I started uh, attending church when I was still in my mother's tummy. When I was born, I graduated to the nursery, and I've known nothing else outside of the church. And I praise God for that grace and mercy that he's given me to be able to be raised in an environment to hear the truths of the Lord. But the reality is there are times in my life where it's very easy for it to just become a function that I do, not something that continues to impact my heart. Now, here's, here's the challenge with that is that when I forget who I was, and when I forget what Jesus did for me, then the next step is I forget that that's what everybody else needs too. So can I challenge us this morning, maybe you find yourself in that place, to refresh yourselves in these fundamental, basic, amazing truths of the gospel. Because it is these truths that fuel the effort of missions to the ends of the earth. It is these truths, understanding that Jesus was willing to come to the earth from the perfection of heaven, 
to die a brutal death on the cross for you that makes us willing to take the sacrifices that are needed to see that message get to those who have never heard. So maybe you find yourself here this morning needing refreshing in some of these just basic fundamental ideas of the gospel. Two other just really amazing truths. It's not just that he came to the earth and he died on the cross to forgive our sins. He did do that. But he's going to return victorious. He will sit on his throne and he will reign. And one day every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And then, somewhere in all of that, comes the judgment. The judgment's not something that we talk a lot about, but the judgment is a very real event that will happen in history. You see, at one point, every one of us in this room will stand before a holy, perfect, just God. And there is only one answer that will suffice him, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Because as Jesus hung on the cross, he not only shed his blood for our sins, but he took the very wrath of God for you. But not just for you, not just for me, not just for those of us in this room. He did it for every person in the earth. Today there are just over 8 billion people on the earth. You realize over the last 230 years, the population of the world has gone from just over 1 billion to 8.2 billion people. That is a lot of growth in a short period of time. Most of those people live in a part of the world that has very little access to the gospel. Northern Africa, the Middle East, down into South Asia. There are two billion people in the world today who have yet to even hear the name of Jesus, much less the message of the gospel. They will one day stand before a holy, perfect, just God having not heard the name of Jesus. So this brings us to the critical question. If sin is the greatest problem in the world today, and if the gospel truly is the answer, then how does the gospel get to the lost? Great question. If we look here at Romans chapter 10, it says, How then can they call on the one In verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. You see, the primary way that the gospel gets to the lost is through our mouths. It's through us. It's not just through me as a professional, quote-unquote, missionary. It's, it's not just through Pastor Paul, although having spent some time with him in London and hearing his heart last night, is an incredible missionary leader of this church. It's through every believer of Jesus. You've been given the Spirit of God. You have the power and authority to take this gospel to the hurting and the dying. 
and to proclaim it with your mouth. And it is the power of the gospel that will transform a dead life to something that is living. I heard a, a pastor one time give this example that we have the most impossible job in the, in the world. Our job is like going into a cemetery and looking at a tomb and saying, get up! You realize when we go out and proclaim the gospel, we are sharing with spiritual people who are not alive. There is nothing that you can do. There is no tool that you can have There is no action that you can take that can bring a dead person from the life. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes out through your mouth and the Spirit of God into their life that all of a sudden opens their eyes to see, their ears to hear, and gives them life and life more abundant. And as followers of Jesus, we have this message We have this spirit in us to go to a hurting and broken and divided world and preach the good news. Not only did he save us, but he has empowered us to be on mission. All right, time to get a little real, okay? I know sometimes in in church circles we can just give you know, the Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? But I really want us to wrestle with this question, okay? If you could just be honest with yourself. What are some of the things in your life that currently prevents you from sharing this amazing message? What are some things in your life that currently prevents you from sharing this amazing message? Now, the reality is we have an enemy, We do have an enemy, and he's real, and he fights. We know that the gospel has been a threat to earthly kingdoms. We know that the gospel has been a threat in the earth since the New Testament times. That has not changed. The gospel is still a threat today because it is the the kingdom of God that's coming down into the earth. When I was in South Asia... A lot, of the, a lot of what would prevent the gospel from going out was fear from physical persecution. And there were some very brutal things that they would do to believers to try to stop them from going out and sharing the gospel. Have you ever thought to yourself why a small minority of people and why the powerful and those that have a, a major majority would be afraid of so few people? But they are afraid of it. And so they would, they would do things to prevent the gospel by physical harm. Now, I knew many brothers and sisters who were willing to take on the physical harm so that their people could hear the gospel. When we moved to, to London, I, I began to feel a different fear that came into my own heart, right? I'm a professional missionary. That came into my own heart, and that was shame. Because as I would go out and and share the gospel, I would hear like, oh, you're so backwards. Oh, you're an idiot. How can you believe these crazy stories? This This is ridiculous. You are so dumb. You're ignorant. Anybody heard any of those things? Whether somebody's told you that or whether you hear that from others, that's what's out there. And I began to realize that as I would go out and share the gospel, I would actually begin to swallow the gospel more than I would share it because I didn't want to bear that shame. 
You know, Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's interesting that Paul had to write that, isn't it? That Paul himself had to say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because there is a shame element to the gospel in the earth that we live in. So, so one of the reasons could just be fear, it could be shame. Another reason could just be that you don't know how to. And what's awesome about this church is even last night, I think, there was a training on how to share your faith. And so if, if it is that, then I know that there are opportunities to be trained and equipped and those that will walk beside you even here on this earth. So what, what are some things in your life that currently prevent you from sharing this amazing message? The, the most critical question that we as the church could ask is who currently today does not have access to the gospel? Who does not have access to the gospel? Again, the reality is there are over 2 billion people today who currently don't have access to the gospel. And if we are the ones to take the gospel there, then that means that what we are praying through and talking through this week and this morning is critical. It's critical that you listen to the Lord and how he would lead you to engage in this mission, whether that's continuing here or going there. But I I realized in moving to London that when we think about access to the gospel, I always thought people in the 1040 window, people in Northern Africa, the Middle East and South Asia and East Asia, that they don't have access to the gospel and they don't and we need to continue to push there. But as I've moved to London, I've realized that there are a lot in the Western world who have also not heard the gospel. My friend Carl, who's an executive at Lloyd's, an insurance, uh, a bank, but he's a, it's an insurance subsidiary of Lloyd's. He was uh, the CFO, the chief financial officer. So uh, success in terms of the world, power in terms of the world, but totally broken. He was on cocaine, because apparently that's what you do in that world, and you know, strip clubs and just all that stuff that apparently is involved in, in the finance world. His marriage was falling apart. They had a, a young daughter, couldn't go to sleep. They stuck her in the back of the car, as you do, so that you can drive and get them to sleep. And they weren't about to touch her, leave her there. So they were parked in a parking lot. And a pastor just happened to be running by. The pastor stopped and said, hey, for some reason, I feel like I just need to come and pray for you. Is there anything I can pray for you about? So they prayed for Carl and his wife, Sarah, who were sitting there. And Carl said that's the first time, number one, anyone had ever prayed for him. Number two, he'd ever met a pastor or a believer as far as he knew. And from that then, it was the very first time that he had ever heard the gospel as a British person. Fast forward about 18 months, he would give his life to the Lord. I would meet him about 18 months later, and he is passionate about getting the gospel to the lost because he understands what it's like to not be found, and he understands what it's like to be found, and he knows that most of his friends still have not heard the gospel. It was just in Richmond, Virginia for some meetings. We were eating at a pizza place. Our server came and we said, hey, we're about to pray for our food. We would love to pray for you. 
We're followers of Jesus. We believe he loves you. He cares for you. Is there anything we can pray for you about? He just broke down. It's like I'm in the lowest part of my life that I've ever been. He's 32 years old. He said, I've tried alcohol. Alcohol broke me even further. Lost a lot of my family. It's like, honestly, I'm in a hopeless place, so I don't even know what to ask to pray for. So we shared the gospel with him. Hear the words out of his mouth. In Richmond, Virginia, an American. I've never heard that before. What we're beginning to realize in Europe is that maybe we've reversed our missiology. And by that, here's what I mean. Maybe we've said, hey, the gospel is here. Come and get the gospel. But what we don't realize sometimes is that the culture has grown so far away from the church and the foundation of the word that there are huge cultural and linguistic barriers that they have to jump over to come and get the gospel. So we're asking them to be the missionaries. We're asking them to come to us. Well, number one, that's just really bad missiology. But number two, the most important thing is, that's not what we've been asked to do biblically. You see, the reality is Jesus pursues the one. Jesus goes after the lost. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So missions is us going into the world, into our workplace, into our home place, even where we play, and being a light for Jesus. And can I suggest to you again, as we look at all the problems of the world today, there are a lot of people in power who are trying to come up with solutions to these problems, whether it be through policy, whether it be through government mandates, or through business. None of them, absolutely none of them, have the power and ability to solve this problem. None of them do. The only one that has the power and authority to solve this problem is Jesus Christ. But here's what that means. That means that our mission today as we look at the world is critical. It's urgent, which is why I love that it doesn't, that, that your missions conference is now. Not tomorrow, not, hey, let's think about this five years from now. There are people in this community who need it today. Today. All right, so the biggest problem in the world, sin, the answer is the gospel. We are the ones to take the gospel. But as I, as I look at Paul, we see Paul wrote the book of Romans. Paul has this ambition for getting the gospel out. And I think there's a reason why he has this ambition. We see in Romans 15, he says, my ambition is to take the gospel where the gospel has never been. Paul even prays at one point, take my salvation so that they might be saved. That's, that's the degree to which Paul had an ambition and was willing to get the gospel to the lost. Now, if you remember, Paul was at one point Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of the church. He hated God. And he was doing everything in his power to stop the message of the gospel, to stop the church from moving forward. We see in Acts chapter 7, 
In Acts chapter 7, there's this servant of the church named Stephen. And Stephen had gotten very bold, and he had gone out and to start sharing the gospel. And the cost of that for Stephen was that he was being brutally martyred for his faith. So there at the end of Acts 7, as, as Stephen's being martyred, there was somebody standing right in front of him. His name was Saul. Stephen, as he's being martyred, the heavens open, it says, and he looks up. And then he makes this statement, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. A reflection of Christ on the cross, even. Two chapters later, Acts chapter 9, Saul, an enemy of God, brutally murdering God's people, one of God's servants, Stephen, is on the road to Damascus, and God comes and radically saves him. I believe that Stephen's prayer there in Acts chapter 7 has a direct impact on Saul's salvation in Acts 9. Now here's what's amazing to me is that Stephen did not say, judge him, God, sick him, kill him, take him out. He's hurting your people. That was not Stephen's posture. If anyone had the right to say that, it would have been Stephen. Stephen's heart posture towards even Saul, the greatest enemy of the church at that time, was don't hold this sin against them. So as we go about this mission, our motive is really important. You need to come back and preach it and speak uh, quite a bit in, in America and living outside of America. Sometimes it gives you a fascinating picture of, of things. And living outside of your culture gives you a whole new light in your culture. As I come back to the U.S. and speak at churches and engage with people, if I'm just going to be honest with you, it seems like there's a lot of anger out there towards lostness today. Because they stole something from us. Because they took what we had. They're enemies of God. And if we're not careful, that can easily move to retribution. They need to pay the price. Can I remind you, there's already one who's paid the price. Can I remind you that you too were once an enemy of God? Jesus looked at the crowds and was moved with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. What is the motive of your heart towards the lost today? Is it one of anger and bitterness and frustration? Or is it one who can look at them through the eyes of Jesus and say, I too was once there? Yet, for the blood and grace of Jesus. The motive is critical. I'm going to end with a story I actually didn't tell in the first service, um, but I do feel like I should share it this service. A guy named, uh, call him Abdul in South Asia. Uh, my wife and, and I, at that time we had one daughter. She was 18 months old. We moved to this state in the middle of, of India. 
which at that point really had no foreigners there, definitely no white people. Uh, and so we were very, we felt very alone in that place. God reminded us over and over again, though, hey, this isn't you, this is me that's doing this work through you. We went through some very challenging times. We lost uh, a son in that period. We went to this training where we would, it was a two-day training where we'd share uh, mainly Indian pastors, we'd share with them like how to share the gospel and how to be on mission for Matthew 28, the Great Commission. There were about 50 pastors kind of dressed in pastor uh, wear, and there was one that was dressed in full Muslim garb. And I just thought, oh, that's kind of interesting, but we did the training, and I left my number and said, please call me if you have any questions, and we'll reconnect in two months when we come back. About Three to four weeks later, I get this call from Abdul, who says, hey, Jacob, I've led three other Hafiz imams to the Lord. Like, what do I do? So I'm like, well, first of all, you're going to have to tell me what a Hafiz imam is. Because I came to India to reach Hindus, which is the majority population, but there's a lot of Muslims there, I learned. So I went and joined him and these three others. Come to find out Abdul was a Hafiz imam, meaning... He was a leader of one of the local mosques. He had the Quran completely memorized. Literally, the Quran completely memorized. Put me to shame. He was a part of a radical organization there in, uh, in India. Actually had a part in planning the Mumbai bombing in 2008. Not carrying it out, but planning it. He was about as radical and conservative a Muslim as you could, as you could get. And he, he then kind of unpacked his story for me. He said, last Christmas, so this would have been in May, so five months ago, uh, I was challenged by a believer with the birth story of Jesus. So we read it from the Bible where the Spirit of God comes with the Virgin Mary and Jesus is conceived. And then we read it from the Quran in Al-Maryam, Surah 3, where Allah breathes into Mary and Jesus is conceived. And he said, I... I had a question. The Spirit of God is what he said, put a question on my heart at that, at that moment. If God is Jesus's, if God did that with Mary, then like where does he get his good name from? Because a good name has to come from the dad. And so he went and asked these mullahs. He went before even a Sharia to say, what is this? And they were like, I don't know. It could be like Adam or it could be, they gave him all kinds of different answers. And finally he said, no. Jesus is the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then that means the Bible is true. And he gave his life to Christ, but he didn't know any other believers. And so he had a dream one night that told him to go to this door. And so he said, so I woke up the next morning and I went to this door and I knocked on it and this guy came to the door and he said, I know this sounds really weird and really strange, but I kind of had this dream. And the guy that answered the door was a pastor. And he said, hey, I'm actually running late to go to this meeting. Why don't you just come with me? Okay. So he came with him to the training that we were giving on Matthew 28. And he said, I knew as a good follower of God, I do what God asked me to do. So what did he do? He went and began to share with those that he knew, which were other Hafiz imams who had the Quran completely memorized. So now I'm sitting with these four brand new believers, and we're discussing what do we do now. The Quran, again, just 
because they haven't memorized pouring out of, of their mouth. They say, I think we, we, need, to, we need to turn our, uh, our mosques into churches. Well, I'm a really good, a really good missionary, so I said, no, that's not what. <laughs> like, that's going to get us killed. <laughs> like, no, that's what, like, that's what we're supposed to do, right? It's like, well, you can't have a point. So they went about that work. They never turned the physical mosque into churches, but they did um, see people save from their mosque. From that, Abdul had a wife. He had uh, two kids that were the same age as our two kids. And um, his father-in-law came and said, hey, my daughter either stays with you and this and your faith, or she never sees you again and comes with me. If she stays with you, I'm cutting her off. We're never talking to her again. So she chose her family. So she took the kids with her and Sharia. They put a fatwa for a divorce. So now he's on his own. Uh, obviously, as a Hafizi mom, he had no other training. So it was hard for him to get a job. He just struggled and, and, and struggled and struggled in terms of this world. At one point, he was like, I was ready to give up. And he had another dream where uh, a light said, Abdul, what you've lost in the world pales in comparison what you've gained in me. He said, with that, my heart was resolute. But here's the, here's the challenging statement that he made to me. This was probably three months after I knew him. He said, Jacob, I don't understand you Americans. I was like, you're going to have to unpack that because I'm a little bit offended at this point. <laughs> he said, you guys have the true God. You have the true God. He said, I have friends who are willing to blow themselves up for a false god. But it doesn't seem like you're willing to do very much for the real God. Why are you the only one in MPUs here to, to bring us this message? I was like, well, I'm not the only one. Like, there's believers here and tried to help them understand some of that. But that kind of rocked my world a little bit. It gets back to the question that I asked. Are we just doing church to do church? Are we just Christians because that's kind of the thing to do in our culture? Or do we really believe what Jesus says? Do we believe that sin truly is the greatest problem in the world today? Do we believe that Jesus loved us and loved the world in its sin so much that he was still willing to come and die on the cross for us? And do we believe that we have each been empowered as his followers with his spirit to take this message to those who have not heard? I believe what this world needs today is a church who gets back to understanding these fundamental truths. Followers of Jesus who are willing to say, Jesus loved me when I was an enemy. I'm going to love his and my enemies in spite of it. Maybe this morning, the Lord's stirring in your heart and you're like, man, you know what? I actually never put my faith in Jesus. I'm still lost. I'm still in my sin. Just to remind you, Jesus knows everything about you 
There's nothing hidden from him. He knows every thought that you've thunk. He knows every bad thing that you've done. I encourage you, there, there's nothing that's too bad for Jesus. He loves you. Even in spite of everything that you've done, he came and died on a cross so that you could be saved. As we saw in Romans chapter 10, if you will believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you this morning will be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I've just kind of been doing the church thing. I've just been living life, going to work, coming back. I come to a service on Sunday morning, but this needs to be more real in my life. I'm just going to pray for us in just a second. Again, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. He knows. He knows that You were maybe on fire once and you've lost some of that passion. His desire is that you would regain that passion and that's that's what he wants for you this morning. He's there. It's amazing to me the word says so much. He's waiting. He's waiting. So let me pray for us and I'm going to hand it over to Paul. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you loved us. You loved me so much that you came to this earth to die on a cross so that I could be saved. God, thank you for those that shared that message with me. Jesus, would you challenge us where we need challenge this morning, encourage us where we need encouraged? Jesus, we cry out on behalf of your church in this world today and on behalf of this church. God, stir us, stir our passions, renew us to be on mission because it is the most critical thing in the world today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed for a moment more. I want to challenge you on your individual response. Maybe you need to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. There's no magic prayer. You've just got to acknowledge that great problem of lostness in your own life. You're a sinner, and you have to desire for Jesus to save you because of what he's done on the cross. So simple prayer might be, Jesus, I know I need to be saved. Please save me. And you can do that where you are right now. Many of us here profess that relationship with Jesus. We've said yes to him. We've just not said yes to his mission. We're not involved where we live and where we work and where we play. And you've just got to decide. And I challenge you to do that today. Am I going to hear this and respond and be a difference maker? Or am I just going to go on my way as if nothing's happened? God, I pray that in these moments you would stir us to the point of decision. And I ask you to do that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you say thank you to my friend Jacob? What a compelling message from God's Word.